You're listening to the Christ Church Toronto podcast, a recording of the Sunday sermons from Christ Church Toronto. Christ Church Toronto is a new church in Toronto's East End that seeks to practice the ancient Christian faith today. We would love for you to join us in the future, but until then, please turn your attention to the scripture reading. The scripture reading this morning is from Philippians chapter 3, verse 17 through chapter 4, verse 1. Brothers and sisters, join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many, of whom I have often told you, and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame, with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body, by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. This is the word of the Lord for our church and is given for our good. Well, thank you so much, Caitlin. Let's pray before we turn our attention to this passage. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you've given to us your word. We thank you that your spirit applies your word to our lives. We ask now that you would send your spirit upon us in a powerful way, that each one of us would hear your word and we would know that you have spoken to us, that you have spoken for us, and we would know your great love for us in Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, for me, one of the greatest television shows was The Office. And one of the best scenes in The Office came in the third season. If you don't know anything about the show, I'll do my best to try to paint a scene for you. Uh, There's some office drama. Pam is the secretary uh, in The Office. And for a long time, she's dated a man named Roy, who actually works in the warehouse under The Office. Their relationship comes to an end. And Jim Halpert, the sort of charming salesman in the office, ends up in a situation where he kisses Pam. Roy finds out about this and he is so angry. And after a week of work, Friday comes, Roy is pacing around in the parking lot, fist clenched. He's ready to fight Jim. He walks up into the office and screams, Halpert! And Jim's eyes meet Roy's eyes and Pam's eyes see what Roy is is doing. And she screams, Roy! And as she screams, he charges forward with his fist back, ready to punch Jim right in the face. And what happens? If you're a fan of The Office, you should remember it. Dwight Schrute, that very awkward and intense rival salesman to Jim, intercepts Roy and sprays pepper spray right in his face. And while the whole office is coughing, the scene goes black. The scene then comes back up again. It's the next uh, work day, the next day back in the office, the next Monday. And Jim wants to thank Dwight for stopping Roy. So he says to Dwight, though they have this uh, relationship that's marked by animosity, he says to Dwight, thank you for what you did. 
And he says, Dwight, I actually have a gift for you. And you may remember Dwight says, don't want it, as he stays focused on his computer, continuing typing. And Jim says, Dwight, it's a gift. Just take it. You don't even know what it is. And Dwight says this, don't want it, won't open it, don't need it, won't take it. And then he gives this great line, citizens do not accept prizes for being citizens. Citizens do not accept prizes for being citizens. It's a ridiculous scene, but what's Dwight's point? That citizenship comes with certain obligation. There's a certain civic duty. And Dwight is convinced that his civic duty means that he must always carry pepper spray so that he can defend the innocent should the time present itself. Look, we know that there is a certain responsibility that comes with citizenship. The pandemic has put us in situations as Canadians where we realize there's a privilege to be a part of a public health care system, but now there's certain obligations and expectations that have to fall upon us if we're going to be faithful citizens during the time of a pandemic. This passage is all about being a faithful citizen. The Apostle Paul actually states in this passage that when you believe in Jesus, when you, when you hear the story about what God has done in Jesus, and you say, this is the tr- a true story, when you acknowledge that Jesus died, but he rose from the dead, and that he's alive today, reigning in heaven as a king, when you say, Jesus is my king, at that moment, you sort of gain a second citizenship. You, be, you gain a citizenship in Jesus's kingdom, in the kingdom of heaven. And like any other citizenship, that citizenship comes with certain privileges and obligations and expectations and demands. And this passage is all about that citizenship. And the Apostle Paul wants you to think about what it means to be an exemplar citizen of the kingdom that Jesus reigns over. What do exemplar citizens do? Do they carry bottles of pepper spray? Paul doesn't go there. How do, they, how do you become a faithful citizen of the kingdom of heaven? That's what this passage is about. And Paul's going to point out three elements for us if we're going to be faithful citizens in the kingdom of heaven. He's going to talk about a certain training that all citizens have to go through. He's going to talk about a certain privileges that belong to all citizens. And finally, he's going to talk about certain responsibilities and expectations that fall on all citizens. So let's first look at the training the civics class that all citizens of Jesus' kingdom are asked to participate in. Where do we read about that training? We read about it right away in verse 17. Paul calls his sisters and brothers in the church to join in imitating him. He then says that they're to keep their eyes on those who walk according to the example that Paul has set forward for them. Now, what is Paul saying? Well, I think Paul is saying that civic virtue, civic duty, is always caught rather than taught. It's primarily caught through observing examples rather than taught through passing on classroom-style bookwork. Paul is saying to be an exemplar member of God's kingdom, there always must be someone in your life that you are looking up to, that you are imitating. And when you don't have this, there is no way you can conduct yourself as an exemplar member of of Jesus' kingdom. Now, it should be very clear here. This is strange language. As Paul says, imitate me, it could come across funny to your ears. It could sound a bit like a cult follower. But don't forget, Paul, in the previous passage, has told people it's not as though he's arrived into some sort of spiritual state of perfection. He says that he is still struggling, still striving, ambitious towards the goal of being fully uh, united and loyal and allegiant 
to Jesus as he reigns in heaven. Paul is saying, uh, not necessarily to follow me as though Paul is some kind of cult leader. In fact, he never refers to anyone in any church as his followers. He always refers to them as sisters and brothers and co-laborers. But Paul's point is this. There is no way for you to mature as a Christian without looking up to somebody who's living out their loyalty, their citizenship in Jesus' kingdom in your world. There's no way for you to mature without someone to look up to. Paul gives us some negative examples in verse 18. He remembers with tears how some, I presume, who were his close friends, who were in the church, are now enemies of the cross. They've set their mind on earthly things. Their God is their belly, their gut. This simply means they live off of impulses. They glory in shame. This simply means that they uh, boast and brag about their exploits and things they should be ashamed of. And you have to guess that Paul knows that these people who become enemies of the cross came, came, uh, got to this place not because of failure in how they thought, but because they began to look up to other examples. They quit following the way of the cross, Paul said, and now they are on a path towards destruction. This is why Paul says, don't set your eyes on these people as sad as they might make you. Set your eyes on the example that Paul is leading or those who are following after Christ. Keep your eyes affixed on these people. Now, what's Paul arguing? Maybe I could illustrate it this way. Imagine that you are, uh, you are in for a surgery and you're laid out and prepped for surgery and the nurses are rolling you into the surgery room and they tell you that you have a great privilege today. That the surgeon who's performing your surgery is the first in her class in all of her training. That no one in medical school has ever advanced and had the marks that she had. And the nurses tell you that this doctor, this surgeon that you are about to be operated on by, she is so incredible that she didn't even have to do an internship or a residency. She just skipped those things because she knew everything. And you have the privilege of being her first uh, person under her knife, the first person who is going to receive a surgery from her. Would you mark this as a privilege or would you hop out of that surgical bed and run away? I think you, like me, know that you would much prefer a surgeon who got a C all the way through medical school, but has had the experience of having an expert watch over them as they learn the nuances of surgery. They've been able to look over the shoulder of an expert as they see exemplify the details of opening a human body and closing a human body. Give me someone with C's all day long, but who has had a good internship over someone who had perfect scores, perfect marks, but has never actually been uh, mentored, who has never actually uh, practiced what they have learned with supervision. Paul's word is a good word and a challenge to us. To be a citizen of this kingdom, your civic virtue is going to be caught more than it's taught. And I have to ask, who are you interning under? Obviously, I'm not talking about formalized internships, though there can be some wisdom in that, seasons of mentorship or seasons of intense pastoral care or times of counseling. But who are you looking up to? Who in your life are you trying to be like? Listen, if no one comes to your mind, I assure you, you are looking up to someone. You are an apprentice to someone. And you better be careful if you're not sure who that person is. Who is teaching you sacrificial living? Who is teaching you forgiveness, self-discipline, spiritual discipline? Who? And maybe scarier, who's looking up to you?
Who is admiring how you follow after Christ? Maybe it's a niece, maybe it's a nephew, a son, a daughter. Who's aspiring to follow Christ the way you are following Christ? This is how we are to be trained to be model citizens through following godly examples. But now let's talk about the privilege that belongs to all citizens. We know there's certain privileges to being a Canadian citizen. We have a certain healthcare system that is a privilege to have. We have certain safeties. We have access to beautiful natural parks. Paul says there's certain privileges that come with being a member and a citizen in Christ's kingdom. He talks about it in verse 20 and 21. He says, our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Now, what's Paul talking about? Paul is saying that we have a distinct citizenship that comes with certain privileges and obligations. And though those we are not, we are geographically separated from the fullness of that kingdom, those privileges still belong to us. They're certain, they're sure. Don't forget, Paul is writing to the city of Philippi. You may remember there's a civil war after Julius Caesar's death and Anthony and Octavian win a battle against Brutus and Gaius. And as a way of thanking their soldiers, they allow a legion of soldiers to retire in Philippi and they make Philippi, though it's in Greece, a Roman colony. When you're in Philippi, you are in Rome. You are a Roman citizen if you are born in Philippi. All the power that belongs to Rome is at your disposal, though you are geographically disconnected from Rome. And this would be your hope. This would be your source of great joy. You are safe. You are able to own property. You have access to justice through the Roman justice system. You have access to free, unharassed travel because you are a citizen of Rome. And if anyone fails to give you privileges of travel or fails to give you justice, The full power of the Roman Empire, which was unrivaled, would come down on them. Paul's using this idea and he's saying, you are a citizen of the kingdom of heaven and you have a privilege. And here's the privilege. You are now and you will fully participate in the new creation. Just as Jesus suffered in his body. Just as he experienced frailties of human body, but his body was resurrected from the dead so also your humble and lowly body one day will be glorified. So too, your body will experience the same treatment. What seems ordinary now will be glorified. This is a privilege that you have as a citizen, and God's Spirit is starting that work in you now. Canadian citizens know that we have the privilege of the the public health care system, whether we're healthy or unhealthy. We know we have this privilege, whether we would have enough money to afford out-of-pocket care, or whether we're impoverished. We know this privilege is ours, whether we need it at this time or not. And so Paul is saying, this privilege belongs to you. You will participate in the new creation. How do we apply this? What difference should this make in our life? Well, let me ask, how often do you think about your bodily resurrection? How often do you think about being part of the renewed and restored creation? Do you ever set apart time to meditate and contemplate a world where all your medical diagnoses are things of the past? Where your shattered dreams get put back together? Where broken relationships are mended? Where your list of regrets are undone? 
Do you ever sit, sit outside and look at the creation and long for and wonder what it's going to feel like when you are resurrected from the dead and there's a certain peace between you and your creator and there's a certain peace between you and creation where climate change is a thing of the past? How often do you think about your failed body experiencing glory? Paul is saying this is a privilege that belongs to every citizen of the kingdom, whether they're drawing upon it now or not. And Paul is saying, as you think about that privilege, this should transform how you conduct yourself today. So we've looked at the training of citizens, then the privilege of citizens, but now let's talk about the responsibility of citizens. And we read about this in the last verse in our reading, chapter 4, verse 1, where Paul says, not to his followers, not to uh, sort of the minions under his care, but to his well-loved sisters and brothers that he's proud of. He says, stand firm in the Lord. Paul is using a military term when he says stand firm like a general to soldiers. He's saying, don't lose this hill. Dig in. No one gets past you. Stand strong. Now this has got to be what the Philippian church needed to hear. As it sounds like some who were formerly part of the churches have now become enemies of the cross. And Paul is saying in the face of that discouragement, hold the line. Stand firm in your commitments that Jesus is king. Do not compromise. Do not back down. Yes, you'll be mocked by friends. Yes, you'll have difficult conversations with family. Yes, you will feel like outsiders around co-workers. Do not compromise. Make no concessions. Say Jesus is king. Live a life that shows Jesus is king, not just with your mouth, but with your actions. The picture that comes to my mind as Paul says, stand firm, is all those somewhat funny memories I have of playing Red Rover in gym class as a kid. You remember the game where you hold hands with a team of people next to you and you form a line. And the goal is to charge through someone else's line and break, break the bond that holds the hands together. And what is your duty as people are running towards you? What are you telling the person next to you as you grab their hands so tightly? You're saying, hold on, hold the line, stand firm. This is what Paul is telling to the church, and hopefully you're able to stand firm without your shoulder coming out of socket like Red Rover. Paul is saying, though, there are troubles coming your way, but stand firm, church at Philippi. Stand firm. Yes, some have abandoned the faith, but stand firm. Yes, it feels like the ethic of the kingdom of Jesus is unacceptable in this time and in this place, but you've been placed here to stand firm. Yes, it feels like you might be on the wrong side of history. Yes, you will hear this. You will be told to quit taking the faith so seriously. Paul's saying, stand firm. Yes, it's hard to raise kids in the faith during this time. Stand firm. Yes, your individual sufferings are great. Yes, you've been greatly wronged. Yes, you've been wronged, maybe even by the church. But Paul is saying, this is your duty. In the face of that, stand firm firm. You've been put here at this place and this time. Lock arms, stand strong. How do we do it? Well, we do it by, sure, deepening our commitment to Jesus' kingdom, by reading the scriptures, by obeying God's word, by praying, by calling out to God. But this passage would tell us that we do this together. We don't stand firm individually. We do this by locking arms together, saying maybe pornography is not a temptation for you, but you know for someone else it is, and you will be there holding their hand when that temptation comes full steam their way. You will stand firm. 
Maybe you're not tempted to make your professional life all-consuming. Maybe you're not tempted to neglect parenting your kids for the sake of the status you can receive, the name and renown you can receive in your professional life, but others are, and you know that when that temptation comes their way, you will hold them up. You will stand firm with them, locking arms, getting them through it. Maybe your personal trials and sufferings are so great you feel as though you cannot stand any longer. You cannot stand in the face of what is going to come ahead of you. But this passage is telling us the way we're going to do this is there is going to be someone to our right, someone to our left, holding us up in our hardest times, telling us to stand strong. How are we going to find these people? It's going to start by maybe having dinner with people that you don't know. It's going to start by being vulnerable to people to whom you've mostly had a shallow relationship and saying, I need someone to hold me up. Look, in conclusion to this sermon, I don't know if anyone else remembers Mel Gibson's movie, The Patriot. I was living in the United States when it came out, so it was a little more popular there than I'm guessing it was in Canada. It's basically Braveheart set in the American Revolution. But Gibson is a leader of an untrained army. They're outnumbered. They lack resources. And in the climactic battle, his troops are losing. And in fact, uh, in the way that they traditionally fought with these lines, the line has been broken and his soldiers are retreating. And you remember what Mel Gibson does. He sees all his men retreating and he realizes that this can't continue to happen or else they will lose the war. And so what does he do? Does he scream at them to stop retreating and move forward? No. He, he grabs the flag of the the main uh, communication source that's telling everyone to retreat he grabs the flag of the soldier retreating and he pushes forward right in the face of his enemy soldiers and he says as he's running forward hold the line hold the line and every retreating soldier sees that flag moving in the other direction and hears him saying hold the line and they stop and they turn and they're able to win this victory Now, whether or not you can visualize this scene, I hope you realize that this is exactly what Paul is doing for us. He is saying that he is a citizen of this same kingdom that he's calling us to delight in being citizens of. He understands the great privileges. And as he sits in jail, as he suffers more for this kingdom than probably anyone else in the church, he's grabbing the flag of this kingdom. He's running through people as they retreat. He's running in the face of a difficult future of pain and suffering and uncertainty. And he's saying to the church in Philippi, hold the line. It's worth it. Christ has died for you. Christ rose from the dead for you. Your sins are completely forgiven. All that awaits you is a world where all that is wrong and painful and difficult has been undone. Trust this King. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to the Christ Church Toronto podcast. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at ChristChurchToronto.ca or email us at info at ChristChurchToronto.ca.